Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Got to sit down with the incomparable Anna Marie Lachance today. Anna Marie is a PhD candidate in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering, say that 10 times fast, at the University of Connecticut. She's also been a leader in integrating concepts of anti-racism and abolition in her instruction of bio courses, chem courses, you know, polymer elasticity, uh, what have you, as well as promoting environmental justice. Being the nerd that I am, I had an absolute blast and it was such a pleasure to learn so many new things and gain some new perspective check out her podcast the rule 63 let me know what you think of this conversation if you liked it leave a review give it a rating if you loved it share it with a family member share it with one friend share it with one acquaintance but be sure to subscribe so that you never miss out on another episode enjoy this one You are listening to the Cornerstone Conversations podcast, where we invite and ignite mindful moments through education-driven, people-oriented, principled conversation. I'm your host, Christy Dion. Let's chat. All right. So thank you for getting up early with me today. And Thank you for getting up early with me. I hope I didn't. I always, I, I don't like stepping over people's personal boundaries because I do like doing things very early in the morning. I do too. So yeah, you're perfect. I generally wake up at like six. So I went background about me. I went to Catholic school my whole life. Like up until I went to college, I went to Catholic school my whole life. So a part of that is you have to wake up at the ass crack of dawn Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the buses (laughs) for Catholic school come before the public school buses. So, and I was Mm -hmm. very painstakingly reminded of that when I was helping my sister get ready for school so i was just like oh this is probably why i wake up so early and have no problem about it you can take the girl out of catholic school but you can't take the catholic school out of the girl um right right (laughs) they drill a lot into you from what i understand yeah yeah awesome Uh so i do want to get in i want to get into this but i want to get one question out of the way first uh it's gonna be in the back of my mind the whole time so i want to just get out of the way why chemist why chemical and bio molecular engineering and that's a bit part of it i can't even say it so mm-hmm. <laughs> go ahead no yeah that's fine um i'm gonna just say this stereotypical answer that every chemical engineer gives and that okay. i had a awesome chemistry teacher in high school mr thomas shout out mr thomas uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> 
uh, in high school. And, you know, I also did first robotics as a kid. So FRC, first robotics competition, it basically gets um, high school age or even younger, but the main series is the high school age kids into robotics and engineering. It's basically a sports competition where every year there's a different type of game and you build robots together. It's really about mentorship and team building and competition. It was an amazing entry into the world of engineering. So I decided, hey, I like chemistry. I have this cool chemistry teacher that's encouraging me to apply for UConn chemical engineering as an undergrad. And I like engineering, so there you go. Um, one done. So I applied to UConn chemical engineering, got in, had an amazing four years there. And then I stuck around for a PhD because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life yet. <laughs> Isn't that isn't that why we all stick around? <laughs> I mean, that's cool, basically. Yeah, well, I was at my undergrad for eight years, which is kind mm-hmm. of insane to say, but yeah, I was there for eight years. Okay, so the, what got you into chem is kind of the reason why I'm like haunted by chem. I had like mm-hmm. a terrible <laughs> chem one, chem two, chem one it's lab. So chem, yeah. One way or the other with people, either yes. they hate chemistry or yes. they're like wow this is pretty cool yeah i want to dig into that <laughs> well it it follows me from undergrad because like you know high school is a whole different beast than college and oh yeah if your high school doesn't prepare you and push you like actively push you you will get swallowed up by the beast because i'll never forget this was bio yeah bio my first college exam ever was bio and silly goofy me 17 year old me is like i don't need to study for this i'll just breeze over it like it will just absorb in osmosis osmosis bio and mm-hmm. <laughs> i get in there you I'm, <laughs> you're welcome i get in there and i'm like awesome i like go through the exam i take it i finish it i walk out i'm like i felt like a boss mm-hmm. and i get my exam grade back three hours later and i was like i am an employee I had a, I got a 62 and I was like, Oh, this college is hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. no one ever told me that. Yeah. I so like, I actually help. took, yeah, I actually took AP chemistry in mm-hmm. um, high schools, which means my very first day of yeah. undergrad was walking into organic chemistry, which is a sophomore level class, but I got to skip freshman yeah. general chemistry. Um, and on the first day, I was like, oh, you know, college, new thing, Monday morning, 10 a.m. The professor is like, all right, so let's, let's go through some problems from chapter one. Right. He had already, like, come in expecting us to have read chapter one and, like, understand it so that we can come and do problems together in class. And I was like, oh, my God. And that was my first day of college, the first <laughs> class of college. Yeah. So I get that. And I think really um, a good or bad chemistry teacher can make or break your chemistry experience same with all classes but mm-hmm. chemistry especially it's like i know people that hate it and were traumatized by chemistry yes the trauma still follows me <laughs> oh yeah yeah Absolutely. i feel I, I understand anyway <laughs> yeah so so throughout that experience did you have like an aha moment where it's like i love chemistry specifically or it was just the experience as a whole just the experience as a whole i mean i, I love like the I'm a big dork is, is the yeah. answer. Okay. <laughs> I, it was just this, I love being able to like understand the universe in this quantifiable, um, but also intuitive way. I like to say that engineering 
is the art of quantifying intuition mm-hmm. because it's taking things that you know are kind of you know obviously true if you think about it and then applying mathematical and physics principles to this like right now i'm taing a course called heat and mass transfer that you know can be a big challenge for a lot of students because like the theory heavy part of it but the end the, at the end of the day it's like what's happening with this coffee or tea cup right here you know there's tea in there he is escaping out into the room technically heating up the room but the size of the room is such larger larger order of magnitude in the cup mm-hmm. that it's not as significant as this which will be undrinkable in about half an hour <laughs> so i like okay. to express that to students like you know check in with reality don't get lost in like the reaction equations and whatnot interesting I mean, that's definitely um, not a realistic way of putting it, but I think just like you said, you're taking stuff we already know and you're just putting numbers on it or not just, but you're putting numbers to it. So what, what's your favorite topic to teach? Um, that would probably be unit operations, mm-hmm. which in the terms of like a standard chemical engineering undergraduate curriculum, it's towards the end. So you've gotten like the fundamentals down. The fundamentals of chemical engineering are generally considered to be like thermodynamics, mm-hmm. chemical reaction kinetics, and transport, like how things move. Okay. Um, and you've taken all these fundamental classes and all these topics. And then you're usually in like your junior, senior year, it's senior year at UConn. Um, you're taking all these concepts and applying like the theoretical concepts and applying them to real life scenarios. So instead of just talking about reactions in the theoretical, you know, A plus B goes to C, you're looking at a reactor and maybe even depending on how your class is taught, you're working with a simulation software like Aspen Plus to simulate that reactor. And I like that because that gets a lot more real for students who are maybe, you know, in their senior year, thinking, what do I want to do with my degree? Actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been here for three years. I've learned all these math and equations, but what does a chemical engineer actually do? So I love making those connections between like, here's what you learn in class and here's how they would be applied in industry, for instance, mm-hmm. or bringing in scientific literature to be like, here's what a chemical engineer would do research in, like this heat exchanger, optimizing this system, so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, so you're currently a doctoral student in Mm -hmm. the major that I've said before. I'm going to get it right. Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering Program. You got it. You got it. Let's go. I'm just going to cut that and put it in the beginning. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean. Magic. Movie magic. (laughs) But the million dollar question that every doctoral student loves to hear, academia or industry? I'm going academia. Yeah. Tell me about (laughs) it. It's not as common in engineering. I had this, I did have an aha moment with teaching. Mm-hmm. So in my first semester of my PhD program, I got to TA4 slash teach for, it was a very special situation. Awesome. Teach unit operations, as I just said, and getting to essentially design a class, you know, give lectures. It was like, oh my God, I want to do this forever. Mm-hmm. Especially in the way unit operations is taught at UConn. Um, where every student is just like in a computer lab in front of a computer solving problems. Um, It was an environment where I was just like going around from student to student being like, what's your problem? How can I fix it? What's your problem? Can I fix it? Oh, this person already solved this problem. Talk to them. Yeah. And this very dynamic environment where you just got, I just got to help people in this very direct hands-on way. And I was like, I want to do this forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And I've gotten to TA a few more times since then. And even this past fall, got to teach unit ops all by myself. And that was all really revelatory experiences. So yeah, I'm full in on the teaching side. I even want to go one step further and a lot of, you know, faculty members um, balance research and teaching and service, of course. Um, I am just like not even going to do materials research after my PhD is done. I'm just going to go into a teaching faculty position. Wow. Which usually entails like teaching three or four classes instead of like a one to two course load and then research. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I don't think that's something a lot of people understand. So could you talk a little bit more about that? How, you know, you enter academia, but there are different roles that faculty play. Like there's, I know a lot of people know the term like tenured, but there's Mm -hmm. also like professor, instructor, um, there's the research-based faculty and understanding like there, that there is a difference. Cause I think a lot of people get intimidated by the idea of being a college professor because they're like, I'm going to have to do research, but they don't understand that you, mm-hmm. you do have a choice um, and that there is yeah. options out there within it. And then we can go a little bit into industry role. Oh, sure. Um, there's a lot of different roles in academia. Uh, it would take a whole episode to go through everything you could possibly do with a PhD and in going into academia, but the general tracks, if you're talking about an R1 institution, that being an institution that mainly focuses on research as well as teaching. Um, it could be different if you're going into, for instance, a community college situation where you're mostly going to be teaching, but an R1 institution, like a state school like UConn, most faculty have a research responsibility, meaning they have their own projects going on in whatever their field is, and then most of the time they also have a teaching requirement. So you teach thermo, you teach kinetics, so on and so forth within your department. I'm just thinking about chemical engineering in my case. Yeah. Every department is different in terms of what their core course load requires. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the usual track and that's the usual like tenure track, so to speak. So you get hired on as an associate professor, then you move yeah. up to assistant professor and then professor. And that's just like, you know, pay raises, different levels of responsibility. Maybe you serve on different like committees or whatnot within your department or within your school. Um, where else was I going with this? And yeah, there's also non-tenure track positions. Um, so tenure is the process of like moving up to the point where they can't fire you. Mm. Essentially, like, that, that, that's the main draw. Right. Um, and then there are non-tenure track positions, including, you know, a lot of teaching faculty don't uh, go for tenure. They just sort of like teach their courses as part of their requirement. And the invulnerability is a piece of that. There's also other types of positions entirely like adjunct faculty who are essentially part-time faculty. Um, that of course has its drawbacks of like not being on university insurance and all those things. Um, and yeah, different, and of course different fields have different standards for what's normal. Um, for instance, if you're majoring in English, I have friends that are in, in um, the English program and they're, while they're getting their PhD, they're basically adjunct faculty at different, like two or three different community colleges. Mm-hmm. Whereas in engineering, it's like you are focusing on your research hundred <laughs> percent. If when you're a grad student, maybe right. UTA every now and again, um, because you know, the university has to justify paying you somehow. And then yeah. Right. They have to extract labor from you. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. capitalism. Right. Um, 
but yeah, those are just the main roles off the top of my head. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I wanted you to kind of explain it because I feel that you would have a better grasp of it because you are graduating mm-hmm. in the spring. Applaud. Manifesting for you. You're going to get through it. Thank um, you. Thank you. I'm feeling it. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, so that dissertation piece or that research piece, how like, you know, quote unquote, the, go- the university has to justify paying you. There are mm-hmm. ways to get out of it, right? Because there's like grant writing that you can do. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I feel like that's kind of rare in a sense that um, grant, like dependent on your institution, especially mm-hmm. if you're not getting those hands-on skills from the jump uh, to understand like, okay, this is grant writing. Okay, this is how I go through a publication. All right, this is how I go through a first publication. This is how I present. If you're not getting those hands-on experiences, which I think UConn does a great job of doing, kind of just like, you know, baptism by fire in, a, mm-hmm. in certain programs, uh, it, you can be left really stressed <laughs> about money, Absolutely. About finishing on time. So, and that And that's kind of what turned me off of um, the research faculty position, because a lot of that your responsibilities are not just teaching, not just like mentoring grad students, but mainly it's like grant writing, Mm -hmm. managing money, taking up whatever positions you have to, um, all of that stuff. And I just would rather not deal with it. (laughs) Right. And, and even for, you know, research faculty who also teach the balance is always like 80% research and then you teach a course. But whereas my passion is really in fully in mentoring and teaching and service. Mm -hmm. And so I'm lucky that I'm, I found a path that works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is teaching faculty. But of course, others really like research and just don't mind the grant writing <laughs> aspect of it. And so they would go into a faculty position in there. Or they would ignore academia entirely and go to industry, which I'm not as familiar with. Yeah. But it's an option. Right. <laughs> and what most people do, actually. Yeah, they don't, they don't tell you that, that most people actually go into industry roles and that there are options outside of it. Uh, so I know that you mentioned, you know, chem- being chemical engineer as one. Are there other industry roles? I know you're not as in-depth familiar with it, but are there other, like, possibilities for someone with your degree? Oh, yeah. Um, chemical engineering is unique in that it's a ver- fairly wide range of options that you have uh, before you. You know, you can go into process control. You can go into fuel cell design. Chemical engineering by itself encompasses a lot of different fields. I've seen chemical engineers branch off and do um, biomedical engineering, material science. Um, I've even seen one or two of my undergraduate friends go off into a computer science firm where they manage data about chemical engineering reactors. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's getting hard. The, the more technology progresses, it's getting hard to draw like definitive lines between like chemical engineering and biomedical engineering or chemical engineering and biology. Mm-hmm. Um, we have professors at UConn who are essentially doing chemical engineering principles with like bioreactors, but it's also kind of data science because you're doing data on those reactors and you're working with like the genetic side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen chemical engineering undergrads move into BME, biomedical engineering, PhD programs and all, all over the place. I've seen chemical engineers go and get, you know, positions at UTC Aerospace where they go and work on engines <laughs> and then they go back at, to UConn for like a master's in mechanical engineering, just so they can get more experience with the mechanical side of things and then continue their job. So there's a wide, wide range of possible positions and you'd really just need to 
ask and to know what's out there. Yeah, I, I, I want the key theme to be pulled from that as mm-hmm. you have options. You have <laughs> like so many options. So many options, like for listeners, and this isn't just in, you know, a track for PH, getting your PhD. Like you have options, like mm-hmm. within your job, within like how do you want to apply your skills. I think that there's always a fear that if I go this one track, then I can't go anywhere else. But it, it's all about pulling the skills and pulling lessons from your experiences. So mm-hmm. thank you for talking about those differences a little bit. Uh, you ta- you talked a little bit about some duties about being a professor that necessarily aren't listed. So, you know, you have teaching and then you have research. Those are generally the uh, core nitty gritty tasks mm-hmm. of a college professor. But you also talked about service to um, students as well as mentoring. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And, uh, you know, what do you enjoy about that? Service, yeah. I mean, that's just a sort of a catch-all for anything that's not directly like you are the prof- like the faculty teaching a class. Um, it could be like mentoring a student one-on-one. It could be heading some other like you know diversity committee that's going on within your department. It can be heading some some sort of other institute at UConn for research or otherwise. Um, this is kind of where you get into the eerie side of academia because you know. For instance, female faculty are more likely to pick up on the service role, or there may be an unstated expectation to do service, you know, serve on some sort of women in STEM panel or women in STEM conference um, to go and represent the department at Navache, which is the National Organization of Black Chemists and Chemical Engineers, mm-hmm. um, so on and so forth. So, yeah, um, it's something that is often it can be stated like in the official like you know faculty hiring package like you are expected to do x amount of service um but it can really sometimes be an unfair amount of duty on you know women black faculty queer faculty etc to do those to pick up those roles so i guess the two million dollar question why do you think women ha- are expected to pick up more of these kind of service and task forces and representing, uh, I guess, their, their gender as a whole? Patriarchy? <laughs> <laughs> that's, sort of, that's sort of the easy answer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're obviously th- things are changing. That's what they say. Um, my, my department's actually really unique in that we have almost almost achieved gender parity. So it's not really like you have 20 male professors and the one female professor has to do all of like the, you know, service work with regards to like mentoring young women, women in STEM stuff. Um, obviously every department is different and that might be the case. You know, our chemical engineering department has, I believe one black faculty and he is busy <laughs> as you may expect. Yeah. yeah. Um, killing it obviously but you know um it can be difficult to be like the only one in any sort of space and that's something that trans people certainly understand and can relate to does that answer your question it it does it answers it really well and it begs another question or it kind of got my wheels turning in the sense it's like you said something very profound it's tough to be the only one right and Mm -hmm. 
I think what happens oftentimes when you are the only one in these spaces, whether that be the only, uh, you know, black faculty, the only female faculty, the only transgender faculty, what happens is you put it on yourself as well, just as much as like your environment might put it on you, you put it on yourself as well. Um, I can only speak really from, well, I can speak from the black perspective. There is that kind of unwritten obligation where you're like, okay, I need to make sure that I am like, I've dotted my I's, I've crossed my T's because I'm representing all the people who come after me. So I don't want to leave a poor taste in someone's mouth. Same thing being female in those spaces, but it's that understanding that we have, we have this um, kind of martyr complex where we want to do really well because we understand that we might be the only one for a while and we might be the only one for someone. We might be the first or only, say, Black friend, the first and only female friend, the first and only transgender friend, the first and only what have you. So I think we and the minority community definitely put a little pressure on ourselves as well to perform. And I think it just dates back historically to the fact of we try to stick together. We try to make sure that whatever bounties we, we have for ourselves, that we share the wealth, um, so to speak. I resonate with all of that so hard. I definitely feel this need to be like perfect, Mm -hmm. to be exceptional because I am, the first openly transgender, da 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 da. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my response to that, whenever someone points it out, is like, "Oh, great! I can't wait to meet the second one." Right. <laughs> kind of present say. that challenge. Kind of present yeah. that challenge to people. Yeah. Um, I definitely, definitely agree with all of that. And also, I just want to leave this space better than how I found it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely a incentive that keeps me going to, you know, do all this quote-unquote service work even as a grad student um, to try to participate in you know outreach events to make myself known I served on this panel for um, the new GA orientation yep and I just I'm, I'm, try- I'm learning how to say no to things like this <laughs> sometimes. Yes. but I, I also like going out there and um, letting people know of the resources they have available to them you know I need someone to go and represent like the Rainbow Center and the queer community. So mm-hmm. I popped into the WebEx with the big transgender flag in the background being like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm here. Here's what you can do here, please. Yeah. <laughs> I need you to know that you can find community here. Mm-hmm. I think it's wildly important. I think flags, I mean, you see my my Nigerian flag. Mm-hmm. It One, they're just awesome talking points, but it's a form of representation without having to say it. Like uh, mm-hmm. talk cultural competency, my flag obviously is in the background, and uh, I had a student who is from Ghana, and he was like, when we're doing the breakdown and you know the introductions and icebreakers, he's like, actually, like I noticed your flag, I noticed that's like Nigeria, like I'm from Ghana, like they're talking points and it's connection, and at the end of the day, we all just want to belong. If we look at say like self determination theory, one of those the key marker psychological needs is connectedness everyone wants to feel a part of something that's bigger than themselves so i i do commend you for that in the sense of you're providing a space and that's what it means to be a leader like you know as i said in the opening for um season two like a part of being a leader is creating safe space 
And a part of creating safe space is our language. So unfortunately, we don't want anyone to be hateful or speak hatefully, but it's like, if that's what you feel, then you need to provide someone the chance to have a dialogue with you or GTFO (laughs) Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. they can know like, this is not a safe space. Um, But yeah. So I commend you for that. Uh, If, is there any other kind of topics that you're passionate about that you hope to integrate as a professor that don't necessarily aren't necessarily um, pearls or earmark chem or bio topics? Yeah. I mean, you just mentioned, you know, making a safe space, um, I think I think a lot about the connections between engineering and social justice, mm-hmm. and I really try to integrate that into my teaching philosophy. And that starts from before day one, but on day one, just making sure students know, like, hey, you can come talk to me. This is a safe space to say on day one of the course, Black Lives Matter, to have all of that reflected in your syllabus. There's a lot. There's a lot that you can actually do in your syllabus and on day one of the course. For instance, a policy on um, in your syllabus on, like, if your name differs from what's in the class roster, um, that you can come and talk to me about it, to correct me on your name pronunciation, to tell me your pronouns, to have your pronouns in the little Zoom link, mm-hmm. uh, in your little Zoom box, because what happens a lot with trans individuals is we can have our own name, our own truth, but have that not necessarily be reflected on the class roster, because we haven't gone through the process of legally changing our names or we don't know that, you know, the university IT system lets us just change our names. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that is one thing to be aware of. Um, potentially I, I have sort of been solid. I've been reading a lot about abolition and a lot about restorative justice and transformative education over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I've, I don't know if I'm the first person to ever put this together and I also don't know if this name will stick, but I call it abolitionist engineering education. Um, where, you know, I, I try to move past this, you know, this diversity, equity, inclusion yeah. model that, you know, has its flaws and, you know, people can, diverse people can be there, but that doesn't mean they're supported or in their, in a healing space. I want to push all the way to the end, like full abolition, like full inclusion of every, Inclusion, but also um, making sure those voices are heard and seen and feel safe when they're in my classroom. Um, Could you say that again? Abolition. Abolitionist engineering education. Abolitionist engineering education. Okay. Wow. So tell me, how did you, how did you fall into, or I guess not fall into is the right verb, but how, how does one rediscover abolition past their seventh grade social studies class. Tell me about that. Um, I've just been reading more and more Black voices over the past couple of years, um, getting more into, you know, leftist, feminist, abolitionist content through, you know, YouTube and reading and making friends who have similar beliefs, listening to podcasts like Season of the Bitch. I don't know if I can say that on this show. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and reading fund- fundamental like engineering and not engineering, but educational texts like from Bell Hooks um, and just following my curiosity and following this principle of like listening to voices that don't sound like me. And what that eventually ended up with was a kind of radicalization. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um 
Does that make sense? It makes total sense. So when you're discovering these black voices, because I want to get your process on this, mm-hmm. when you're discovering these black voices, did you have kind of a moment of like, oh, wow, this needs to be out and I need to tell everyone about it and then trying to transform those in your close-knit circle? Yeah, so I think about my own engineering education and all the ways that it was like not a healing space, um, a fairly punitive space. And I compare and contrast, you know, punitive forms of justice versus restorative forms of justice. And I try to map that on best I can to education, especially engineering education, which can very much be like you have three exams and they're all worth 30%, so don't mess up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, you have to hand all these homeworks and if you miss X homeworks, you fail a course. And all these, like, not great teaching practices that don't promote thinking, engaging with material in a serious way, and don't promote healing. And the more I learn about social justice and the way that ties into engineering work, I think, oh, that was completely missing. Mm-hmm. We never talked about racism, misogyny, or any of those concepts in my engineering courses. Mm-hmm. I heard anything about that that was from, you know, my re- required gen eds from other courses. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to um, teach about all those, you know, different topics in the context of engineering because a lot of engineers they just oh what's what does engineering have to do with social justice it's a question that haunts my dreams (laughs) (laughs) everything (laughs) because everything engineers are the architects of society the architects of a society that disenfranchises black populations through environmental racism and redlining Mm -hmm. so many other terrible things Mm -hmm. um and i think it's really important for engineers to talk about so I've been trying to push people as much as I can mm-hmm. and to, in my teaching, reflect those ideas about, you know, divesting from the military industrial complex, you know, thinking about and trying to find solutions around not just climate change, but specifically climate change as it impacts black communities, mm-hmm. environmental racism, and all of these different topics. Mm-hmm. I, so what you're talking about it's so easy for us to separate, say, racism or Mm -hmm. ableism or classism. It's so easy for us to separate them from whatever it is our profession is, because just like you said, the only time you're hearing about it is your gen ed. And when do we normally take gen eds? Our like first year, sophomore year, if that. Mm -hmm. And then that's when you get into the nitty gritty of your like programs towards like junior, senior year. Generally, that's the the uh, format with my cultural competency class the way that I format is like I'm teaching about social justice and then the articles I present to them are whatever topic we talk about and then that community so okay ableism and then here it is in healthcare because I think it's one important that they're reading about it and there's it's they're seeing like oh this thing that you just talked about exists in the potential field that I want to enter. And also there's, you're supposed to constantly be reading. It's just like you said, like I re- you read stuff a few years ago, but you're supposed to constantly be reading and, and learning and educating. And we need to be normalizing. Like I gain new information. It's like, Oh, 
that challenges what I already thought. Do I want to evolve my way of thinking? Okay, sounds good. You know, racism in education, uh, whether intentional or not, that implicit bias. And something that I'm always saying in that class is our implicit biases drive the bus. Mm-hmm. Your implicit biases are what's there when you don't have the time to consciously think. We as humans like to put things in boxes and put things in labels. It's very difficult for us to think outside of that box, no pun intended, and it's very difficult for us to think intuitively because from when we are like a small child, infant, we're being put in these molds, whether it's, you know, boys wear blue, girls wear pink, whether it's boy girl whether it's uh you know even in the classroom per se we put such a heavy emphasis granted i love math and science but we put such a heavy emphasis on math science english not nearly as much emphasis on the arts and look at what we reverted back to in the pandemic the arts what were people doing they were doing pe they were trying to get their walks in their steps in. they were trying to move around they were making tiktoks and dancing on tiktok right Puzzles were very difficult to find for a big chunk of time. Coloring books, you know, uh, parents had to get very creative with their kids of like, all right, they can't stare at this computer. Like, what the heck are we going to do? All right. PE today, we're going to go for a hike. You know, it's very innate and intuitive for us as humans to move and for us to be creative. And it's that creativity. We, we forget that everything's connected, you know. Our, our healthy behaviors are very much connected to the systems that are put in place. You look at the chronic diseases among the black community. Why are they chronic? Okay. Well, we know stress can be a factor for many health issues. Okay. What happens to the body on a biomolecular level? What happens to the body when you're stressed? Well, your blood vessels expand, you know, You're constantly pushing blood to those working tissues because your body is like, yo, we are in trouble. We got to get out of here. I think uh, people are now understanding just how stressful racism is. (laughs) So imagine living through it, you know, For, for generations, generations, you know, and then you think about, okay, when I'm stressed, my blood vessels are trying to get blood to the working tissues so that it knows if I need to GTFO. All right. What happens to an elastic band when it's stretched for an extended period of time. And we all know what that looks like because we all have the rubber band balls that we don't use all the rubber bands, right? They get crusty. They lose their elasticity. They lose the ability to recoil as they should. Okay. We look at atherosclerosis. We look at heart disease. What, what are the like key factors of that? You know, it's stress. So looking at that, even you look at with COVID, it's like, okay, why, are you know people of color and minorities why are they dying at an expense uh, exponentially higher rate than their white counterparts well if we look at redlining like you talked about redlining right where are they living heavy heavily dense cities uh, apartment buildings the air pollution in those buildings the air pollution in the city yeah their lungs probably can't withstand it as well as someone who's living in suburbia Um, Mm -hmm. or in a more rural setting. So these are all things that are connected. And if we just take like, I guess I can't really monitor or 
put a time to it if we take like an hour every day no but if you take the time to really look at like okay the you know hip bones connected to the knee bone the knee bones connected to the ankle bone. but like mm-hmm. if you're taking the time to be like okay this person has this what causes this boom what caused that boom what caused that boom then you can see like dang the able it's really the most scientific thing you can do is challenge yeah. your own hypotheses your own assumptions your own biases mm-hmm. and i love how you're bringing it back to connection as well i also love how you made a rubber band example because that's polymer viscoelasticity and that's my thing yes. <laughs> yes. engineering science <laughs> science yeah science can get very abstracted i feel and disconnected because you're talking about like the theory and the math and the equations and not mm-hmm. talking about the real context in which these problems are being faced mm-hmm. and taking place mm-hmm. yeah i think so even uh 2020 was our election year but like there's still a lot of there's a lot of residual junk from 2020 that will follow us in 2021 probably 2022 as it does but the politis the politicizing of science right um so i just talked a little bit about like redlining about um all of that historic stuff redlining really is in a sense political um and it's an effect of the environment but we oftentimes politicize science what are your thoughts on that i think we very much ought to you know the the genie is not going to be put back in the bottle more and more people are starting to realize the connections between you know, what scientists do, what engineers do, et cetera, and what impacts, you know, different populations, you know, artificial intelligence, medical racism, as you said, there's all these different connections that can and should be made. And I think it should be a requirement to teach about social justice and equity from an engineering and scientific standpoint. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What I did this past semester when I taught UNOPS for the second time is I incorporated a module on environmental justice. So the class is normally fairly technical. You know, you're remembering, like I said, all those concepts from thermokinetics, et cetera, and applying them to like reactors, heat exchangers, whatever. Um, But in the moment that we were in, I knew it would be inappropriate to just ignore um, racial justice. and so I wanted to center the experiences of those facing that sort of injustice and talk about really a chemical engineering or maybe an environmental engineering problem in the context of this course. And what I did is I basically collaborated with a group of students and formed this co-generative dialogue with the students to sort of develop the content for that week. So I had the whole, the whole course planned out, except for that one chunk of time. I was like, I have ideas for what I want to talk about, but I want to let the students lead. I want to let students of diverse voices lead the conversation around environmental justice. And that turned out to be a really impactful teaching process. We talked about, you know, environmental racism as, as it exists, not just, you know, abroad, everyone talks about examples like Flint, Michigan, or Mm -hmm. other things happening around the world. But I tried to be like, no, this is happening in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. There are, you know, people in Bridgeport, Connecticut, that are literally inhaling the fumes of the trash from the surrounding rich neighborhoods that didn't want the trash incinerator in their town. Mm -hmm. So how do we think about that as chemical engineers? Because that's an engineering problem, but it's also a society problem. And these can't be unlinked. Mm -hmm. Did you learn anything new from your students? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like I can't position myself as the complete expert. They brought in a bunch of other new terms, um, like Lulu's, which is locally. Oh shoot. Now I'm going to not remember the term L U L U. It's like locally unwanted land usage or something awesome. and all these concepts and examples of environmental racism in Connecticut that I didn't even know about. You know, I grew up near Waterbury, Connecticut, but one of the students was from Waterbury and they brought up specific instances. And I was like, wow, I grew up in the rich white town next door uh, and had no idea. Mm-hmm. So what I liked about it is, was that students could form these connections. Uh, I had one student who was frustrated about what was happening in Waterbury and didn't really have a voice or a platform to talk about that. Like in all of his engineering courses, he felt like he could not talk about his blackness and where he was from and the problems that he's facing where he was from and how that connects to engineering. But because of this one week that we decided to talk about it, um, he was able to get connected because another student was from Waterbury. He was able to get connected to an activist in that area who was working on that and working with the town on that issue. So that just blew my mind. Like that connection would have never happened if we never created this space, this healing space, but also this space where you can talk about social justice. And that's what has been driving me ever since. That's what has motivated me to continue this work is that we want to give all students a voice to talk about their full selves Mm -hmm. in engineering. Yeah. Well, I would love, I would love to get that format from you because I think more Mm more teachers, more professors should be doing that. Um, it is tough because dependent on where you work, you don't get that freedom to do so. I think that's what I love about higher ed. You get a little bit more freedom when you're making that curriculum um, mm-hmm. and to have those conversations and to have those spaces. So we talked a little bit about environmental justice. We talked a little bit about Black Lives Matter, but what are some other social justice topics that you are passionate about? Um, well, first of all, I'll just say that um, with the specific experience I'm talking about with UniOps, I'm actually writing a conference paper for the American Society of Engineering Education. Awesome. So that paper will be published and out uh, in the coming months, and I'll be able to present that on the national stage. So yay. Um, I, of course, also care about gender diversity and mm-hmm. transgender issues. I just talked about, you know, bringing your full self into the classroom. Mm-hmm. So my transition story starts in my first semester of my PhD program, where I came out to myself as a woman. Um, And I saw it as this very amazing thing. Like, finally, I've made sense of all of these terrible feelings about myself, and I've put a word to it Mm -hmm. and had this revelatory experience. Um, And I was ready to tell the world, but then I had a negative experience coming out to my family. Mm. So that kept me from coming out at work for almost a year. And basically in that year, I was living two lives. And that sounds so stereotypical, Mm -hmm. maybe, but it was like I was one person during the day doing like my PhD research work. And then I came home and I got to be Anna. And on the weekends, I got to be Anna where I got to, you know, practice makeup and get called my name and get called my pronouns by my close personal friends. Be you. Um, You got to be you. And it was like, when I was finally able to come out at work, it was like night and day. Like, I was so glad that I got to bring my full self into the lab and um, 
not try to hang my gender identity or any part of myself at the door because they can't hang your gender at the door when you do research. That impacts the research that you're doing, but also impacts the interpersonal relationships of everybody that you're working with. So the fact that I had to hide a part of myself, this major part of myself from my lab mates, I had an impact on my relationship with my lab mates. And luckily that relationship improved over time after I came out and I got, was able to get closer to them, especially the women in my lab mm-hmm. who there were times when they were talking to me because they happened to feel comfortable around me about like workplace misogyny. And I was like, God, I want to tell you how much that I relate to you and understand you, but I can't. Yeah. And so creating classroom environments and lab environments and everything where trans students feel affirmed and they feel like they can come out and they feel like they can talk to me is so, so important to me. And this very like, technical, theoretical, mathematical world of engineering, it can be very difficult to know like where you stand and where your professors stand. So the, the, I think the more I can get faculty to be like, just just little things like putting your pronouns in your bio or your sign, email signature or mm-hmm. having a statement on your syllabus that's like, hey, if your name differs from the syllabus, whatever, like I mentioned before, the safer students will feel because it's really just little things like that that can help anybody but especially faculty who are in charge of a specific type of environment be a better trans ally and to be a better queer ally i think that was very beautifully said uh so i have helped out a past classmate with his research on um trans athletes in their coming out process and it was really cool for me i'm a nerd for qualitative so being able Mm -hmm. to kind of read all those codes and gain another perspective and you know kind of get in the weeds about it as far as like okay so I'm reading it like this what does this mean and luckily having that type of relationship where he knows I'm coming from a place of pure curiosity and also a place of like "Mm, don't say it like that like message Mm -hmm. received say less right um it, it is I've talked about living in multiple realities like how you know they're saying we have two Americas it's very possible to be two people to be in the same room, to be in the same town, just as you said, and be living two completely different lives. So, um, and I mean, one, it makes me sad that you felt you had to hang up yourself at work because, you know, work is 40 hours of your week per se. I mean, in grad school. As a grad student, it's more like 50. But yeah, go on. <laughs> 50. Capitalism. Um, <clears throat> but <laughs> depends on your lab and all that but uh that's a big part of you that's awake that has you have to put to sleep and so i think uh, the relief the relief of coming uh, out yeah um and even honestly even with a negative experience and i've had kind of the discussion of like you might have to come out multiple times to multiple people in multiple ways and understanding that you're coming out isn't or you're coming out can be mutually exclusive from person to person so we can't let the negative response of one person influence how we tell the next person um and sometimes we have to love people from afar which is tough uh, but at the end of the day just like i said we're all seeking safety and we all deserve to have a safe space to be our full authentic self so 
you're passionate about gender diversity. I also, you're talking a little bit about restorative justice and you can totally correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong in that sense. Uh, but I believe it was Dean Spade. He came to my old uh, job and talking about re- or tran- transformative or restorative justice. Yeah. One, yeah. Of, the, one of the two. Awesome. <laughs> hey. awesome. Uh, and just how, just like you said, putting your pronouns in the syllabus. I never had to introduce myself introduce myself with my pronouns until I worked at another particular institution and I was like, "Whoa, what is going on here?" And it's what we talk about with culture when you've built a culture, people all do it. So all the students knew like, "Hi, my name is blank and my pronouns are." I'm like, "Whoa, what? I I thought we were just doing name where are you from? Like, what are we doing?" Mm-hmm. So like it got to me. I was the last person. I'm like, "Okay, my name is this." I'm like, okay, what was the next, my pronouns are this, you know, you really have to think about it. But doing that allows those students who might be questioning or who are ready to per se, utilize new pronouns that they haven't before, it gives them that space to do so confidently. And if they're not ready to do so, they know that they can at any point. So. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, it's like you said, it's all about connections. Mm -hmm. We are social creatures and we seek to be loved and understood mm-hmm. um yeah i res- yeah. i resonate with all of that 100 percent. yeah well so these are some topics as well that you talk about on your podcast right the the rule 63 so mm-hmm. tell me about it why why is it called the rule 63 and the rule 63 podcast so yeah. um i i've been friends with my friend danny for over 10 years now and Danny was basically like, you want to start a podcast? And I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> we can talk about trans issues because it's, okay, so me and him, one trans femme, one trans mask, someone who deals with the science and technical stuff. Danny um, studies religion and does stuff in the publishing industry and writing. So it's this, these like two perspectives, but both coming together to talk about trans feminism and a trans feminist approach to social justice topics and whatever the heck else we want to talk about. Mm -hmm. It started out as mainly, um, it was like 50-50. Some episodes were just us shooting the shit. um, And some episodes were a little more researched. We we, we came with like notes and we came together to just have a conversation about a particular topic. So you can go to rule 63 which you'll put info in the show notes yep um you can listen to our backlog of episodes um about you know we have an episode for instance about trans gatekeeping in healthcare or queer loneliness but we also have ones like someone date anna <laughs> or <laughs> anna and daddy start a personality test um that it's just like us having a conversation so if you like that conversational side of things you can listen but also if you want to just learn more of the trans 101 stuff that's also available to you awesome so why is it called rule 66 or 63 um it's one of the supposed rules of the internet Uh um (laughs) i don't know all the rules of the internet off the top of my head but 63 is if you google like the name of a fictional character and then the word gender swap then there is almost definitely like a gender swapped like fan art of that character. And so rule 63 is like this idea of gender swapping. And yeah. so I used to live as a man. And now Danny lives as a man and I, Danny used to live as a woman and I, now I live as a woman. So it's just, <laughs> just this joke about how we like swapped genders. 
Yeah. That. Awesome. Well, mm-hmm. we'll have to have Danny on here too, and we'll have a whole squad. We'll have a good. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. What we're trying to do for our future episodes, we had this moment um, last year where we wanted to be more mindful of like the topics that we were talking about and um, looking at the podcasts that we were inspired by. I'm inspired by shows like. Uh, Cornerstone Conversations with Christian Young and <laughs> Reply All and Flash Forward that really go in and like bring on experts and have really detailed notes and scripts and whatever. So our next episode, which will be the first of our new format, um, is coming out February 6th. I'm mm-hmm. doing an episode about the COVID vaccine awesome. and why people may be hesitant about it, really digging deep into vaccine hesitancy and quote unquote anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so and then every month we'll be posting an episode so one episode a month of this really new detailed format and we hope people like it i i think people will like it and i think a big part of podcasting is if you're doing it what if you're doing what you want the right people will show up like you will build Mm -hmm. the right community and the people who leave like you know of course we want everyone to like us again connectedness but the right people will enjoy that format personally i'm a nerd like that so like armchair expert i love armchair expert because it is that conversational but then they fact check themselves at the end so like they're holding themselves accountable uh nerdy stuff where it's just like you know ted talk radio even like things like how i built this i love that like Mm -hmm the nitty gritty and down to it so and plus once a month is very manageable and it allows you to put in what you want to get out of it so mm-hmm. i think it's going to be a great format uh Thank i also i also just i commend you for having that podcast and again creating that space because there are students there are adults even there are you know plenty of people who want to know about these topics and feel stuck they might feel at a stalemate with themselves where they're like my family's saying this thing but like in my soul in my gut it's not feeling like this and you know i want to say trust your gut you know i think we all know right from wrong and your gut's going to tell you what's right your gut has more you know neural pathways than other parts in your body so like mm-hmm. that the feeling of butterflies, that feeling of like, you know, your stomach sinking and all that sort of stuff. Like listen to your body. The body keeps score. Um, The body keeps score. The body keeps score. Um, You know, as as my friend Courtney said, the body keeps score. So Mm -hmm. um, I definitely think that you're going to have some great, I I love the backlog that you already have and you're going to have some phenomenal conversations lined up. Uh, And yeah. um, So I want to kind of wrap it up in the sense of what are some, I guess it's a two-part question. So I'll start with one question. What are some actionable steps that individuals in the STEM community can take towards being activists? That's a big question. Big question. I I like like to finish big. Finish big. (laughs) Finish big. Go hard or go home. Right. Um, Hmm. It's being an activist, huh? Mm-hmm. I guess STEM professors, not STEM professionals, because it'd be more applicable for you for academia. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think there is just one easy answer. Mm-hmm. Definitely get more involved in your department and try to enact change within your department. I guess one tip in all activism is just know 
your circle and know what you have control over. I think a lot of academics are sort of like paralyzed because they like don't know what to do. Um, they don't know where to begin. I will recommend one resource that is blackinengineering.org. Okay. Um, that is basically like a full, full list of like dozens of action items that all departments can take to work towards racial justice. Um, it's a phenomenal resource that I've drawn from, drawn from multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, so know what your power is in your department, know what power you have in your classroom because you have more power than you think. Um, especially when you're working with other faculty, if you can mobilize other faculty to be like, yeah, we should do this. We should implement this new policy or something. Um, so finding who your allies are in the fight, um, what might be your biggest roadblocks, these are just, you know, the first steps to identifying what changes can be made and how they can actually be made. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I had like one big nugget of wisdom to give no, you. I love but that's that. That's a great resource and that's a great place to start. And that's I, where I recommend. Awesome. And kind of my second question, because you are passionate about, uh, you know, uh, the transgender community and you're passionate about gender studies, what is one actionable step that we can take towards allyship for the transgender community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, again, learning about injustice is always a commitment. It's always a lifelong process. It always means listening to diverse voices and also remembering that no single voice is like a monolith of the community. Like I have my own unique trans experience, but that might be totally different from someone who transitioned in a different part of the country of a different race, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, so just never stop learning, always keep listening. Um, and in terms of actionable steps, there's plenty of resources for you. You know, GLAD has a website. Your university probably has an LGBT center. You can just go to that center and be like, hey, I want to know more about this. And they will be happy to help you. Again, people are worried to ask because they're worried about saying the wrong thing. But if you're really, truly about it and like about it about it you will be (laughs) that that will shine through yeah no matter if you say like the wrong thing that'll shine through Mm -hmm. and if you just know when to listen and know when to speak up um you will do great and you will make your classroom or whatever environment you're in a safer space for everybody I i like to also center joy so we, when we talk about oppression, it's always just like, oh, they face this, they face this struggle, they face this struggle. I like to center joy in what I do and state that transitioning was the best thing I ever did. It was the greatest, most radical act of self-care that I ever did. Episode number two of my podcast is called Trans Joy because we knew we wanted to talk about like the serious stuff, healthcare, housing, whatever, but we also knew that you want to talk about how cool it is to be queer and how cool it is to be trans, just to have that freedom to do whatever you want. I bring this up and I'll probably, probably close with this. Um, at some point you are going to have to come out if you are a transgender and at some point you are going to have to like correct people on your pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, trans people eventually become experts in telling like, for instance, in my case, who thinks of me as a woman and who thinks of me as a man that they have to refer to as a woman. Um, and you're going to have to assert yourself and that can be very challenging and very intimidating, but it was also the greatest thing to ever happen to my self-confidence 
because I was just sort of like going around the world, not very confident person, just like letting people treat me whatever, which way and not being able to assert myself, but being able to say, no, these are my pronouns. Mm. I'm she, her, I'm a woman. That's ma'am, not sir. That was an experience that helped me gain the confidence to be the amazing, confident woman that I am now. So as much as it's a struggle to come out, trans people are known for their resilience and their strength and their adaptability and their resourcefulness. And that's what I like to stress alongside the difficult stuff, because that difficult stuff is true. And we do have to deal with it. We can't treat people like, oh, I pity you because you're trans, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. all right i love that i'm smiling ear to ear i love that answer uh you know no one to listen no one to speak and you know there is joy in our resilience so i love that all right so thank you so much cornerstone cronies uh any last thoughts any or you want to just end on that that was amazing no yeah i just want to thank you so much for having me and giving me this platform to talk to your amazing amazing subscribers (laughs) all right so thank you so much for listening uh be sure to check in on rule 63 uh but thank you so much for listening everyone lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.